When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 19th. Today, Bernie Sanders joins a crowded field of Democratic presidential candidates. The trauma of school lockdowns and the death of celebrity fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld. After weeks of deliberating, Senator Bernie Sanders has finally decided that he's running for president, making him the only Democratic candidate currently in the race to have run for the job before. Our campaign is not only about defeating Donald Trump. It is not only about winning the Democratic nomination and the general election. Our campaign is about transforming our country and creating a government based on the principles of economic, social, racial, and environmental justice. But given that Sanders lost to Hillary Clinton by several hundred delegates in the 2016 primaries, it made some people wonder, why is he running again? So, Senator Sanders, you're going to run for president. I am going to run for president. That's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. It makes all the sense in the world that Bernie Sanders would do this, given he gave Hillary Clinton a challenge that almost everybody thought was more serious than anybody anticipated. Aaron Blake writes about politics for The Post, and he says that Sanders is going to draw his support from the people that have always supported him, grassroots activists. He really seemed to gather steam, especially with the Democratic grassroots. Given all of that, it's completely logical that we would have a candidate like him decide to come back four years later and see if he could build on what everybody considered to be a stronger-than-expected showing. And yet I think at least a lot of the perception of the 2016 campaign was that the voters that he got were Democrats who just did not want to vote for Hillary Clinton. With that in mind, what would his base be in a 2020 election? One of the difficult things for him in the 2020 race is that in 2016, he was the guy pushing things to the left. He was the guy talking about single-payer health care, various programs that a lot of people in the Democratic Party just weren't comfortable with at the time. What we've seen since then is a lot of these Democratic candidates have come around to the positions that he took in 2016 and basically have very similar agendas to what he's proposing right now. So I think given that, the question has been, what is his constituency in this race? Does he still have the momentum that he might have had then? Are there other options that are simply going to eat away at the base of support that he had, given they might be younger, they might be more up and coming? And I think that's a real question. Who does he think that he will be able to appeal to? Back in 2016, if you looked at the demographics of each state, you could pretty much predict who would win that state. And it largely came down to how many diverse voters there were. If a state had lots of black and Hispanic voters, 
Hillary Clinton would do much better. If it was a predominantly white Democratic electorate, this is a race that Bernie Sanders almost always won, especially in caucus states. So for Bernie Sanders, the big question is whether he can expand his appeal, whether he can hold those voters, but also grow into what the Democratic Party is increasingly these days, which is a very diverse party that relies upon voter groups that just were not into his candidacy in 2016. And I think that kind of speaks to two knocks that already exist against him. First of all, the fact that there is this impression that he snubbed Black and Latino voters in 2016 and didn't take particular care to provide outreach to them. But also we have more recent reports about women who were on his staff in 2016 who were sexually harassed by male campaign staffers. How has he been handling those controversies and what is he saying about them now? I don't think that he has dealt with them as well as people around him would have liked. There was one moment where he was asked about all this, and he basically said something to the effect of, well, I didn't know about it because I was busy campaigning across the country. So I certainly apologize to any woman who felt that she was not treated appropriately. And of course, if I run, we will do better uh, next time. And and just to be clear, you seem to indicate that you did not know at the time about the allegations. Is that correct? I, yes, I was a little bit busy running around uh, the country trying to make the case. I think particularly for somebody who angered a large portion of the Democratic base by how he ran against Hillary Clinton, didn't do particularly well among female Democratic voters in 2016, dealing with a controversy like this and putting it to rest early is going to be a very important thing for him. And this is a candidate, by the way, who for how well he did in the 2016 race, he was never the front runner. The front runner gets the scrutiny. Bernie Sanders was vetted to some degree, but he never had the front runner's vetting. The one asset that he has having ran in 2016 is his ability to fundraise, the fact that he has fundraised before and done it pretty well and presumably will be able to do that again. What is your sense so far of how successful he'll be, especially in terms of getting grassroots money? Early indications are that he is off to a good fundraising start. We would expect that to be the case. It's going to be a good early test of Bernie Sanders' momentum to see if that those small dollar donations roll in right away, how he compares to those other Democratic candidates with those small dollar donors. Because if those candidates are raising more money from the activist base who maybe shell out 10, 15, 20 bucks at a time, that's going to be a good sign that maybe they've stolen some of his thunder early in this race. He's also older than any of these other candidates. How do you think that's going to play out? The age question for Bernie Sanders is clearly a big one. He was an old candidate when he ran in 2016, and it was an issue then. I think it could be an issue for Bernie Sanders for one main reason, and that's that he projects like an old guy. We have other candidates in this race or who could run in this race who are in their 70s. We have Michael Bloomberg. We have Joe Biden. Elizabeth Warren is almost 70 years old herself. That's certainly got to be a question, and it would be a question if he was to emerge as a frontrunner here. Another potential liability that is very much in the foreground here is the fact that Bernie Sanders is still not a Democrat. This is a guy who sought the Democratic nomination in 2016. He basically made nice 
with the party to an extent. He had never been a Democrat before, but he had basically caucused with them. I don't know that a guy who won, you know, 45 percent of the Democratic Party's primary votes in the 2016 election was really paying a big price for not technically being a Democrat. But we'll see. Again, if he emerges as a frontrunner, all these issues could become much more relevant. He could get attacked much more than he did in 2016. And if all those Democrats are up on stage and he says, I was on these issues before you guys were, they can come back at him and say, well, that might be the case, but I have been a Democrat for a very long time and you still are not a Democrat. So I have the best interests of this party at heart. And certainly there have been cases where Bernie Sanders didn't seem to be really a team player with Democrats. You know, you talk about other candidates that have adopted his policy platform, a platform that is much more palatable now because he ran in 2016. How do the other Democratic candidates compare to him right now? I think if you look at his platform, he basically combines everything that the Democrats have moved to the left on. Medicare for all, free college tuition, $15 minimum wage. I don't know that there's necessarily one other candidate who is willing to go there on all of these different issues. You know, somebody like Cory Booker might be on board with some of these things, but he's also worried about how some of these policies might affect the corporate world. We see somebody like Amy Klobuchar, who was just talking about these issues on Monday night in a CNN town hall. And she basically talks about how Medicare for all is a nice idea, but it's just not practical right now. Same thing with free college tuition. What's your reservation about supporting Medicare for all? Well, I think it's something that we can look to for the future, but I want to get action now. I am not for free four-year college for all, no. And I wish if I was a a magic genie and could give that to everyone and we could afford it, I would. To the extent that somebody is looking for somebody who is pitching all of these ideas, he's probably the one, but we'll see how these platforms evolve over time. It kind of strikes me that The fact that there is so much overlap between these Democratic candidates on their platforms, then in some ways it all kind of negates each other that if you have all these candidates who are essentially making very similar promises, maybe with a a couple differences here and there, that ultimately the campaign will be much more about them and their personality rather than actual policy platforms. There's no question that could be where we wind up. 2016 was a very clear contrast of policies and of styles. We had Bernie Sanders being more populist, Hillary Clinton being much more establishment. She talked about some of these proposals in the same way we see Republicans talking about them, which is that they're impractical, that they would balloon the deficit. So if we have a situation where, you know, we have – 10 people on a debate stage and eight of them are saying the same thing about Medicare for all, about the minimum wage. In this country, everyone, everyone gets a right to basic health care. That's what Medicare for all is all about. And that's why we're here. Let's give the taxpayers of the United States a better return on their investment, which means Medicare for all. It's time for something better. And I'm thrilled to announce that I support Senator Sanders' Medicare for all bill. It's going to be more about personalities. It's going to be more about intangibles. But I think like somebody like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to some degree can make the case that they have been in this space for much longer than other Democratic candidates have been. Bernie Sanders was talking about these things before they were cool, so to speak. 
And I think that can be a compelling message to Democratic voters who have also come around to these ideas. If, if Bernie Sanders was, quote unquote, right about these things 10 years ago and these other candidates have only come along more recently, maybe he actually believes these things more than they do. Maybe he's more of a guy who's actually going to stick to these proposals. I think that's going to be a fixture of his message, that he was there before all these other candidates were there. And even if they're talking about the same policies, he has been a true believer for years and even decades. Aaron Blake writes about politics for The Post. In the first few hours since Sanders announced he was running in 2020, his campaign said that they had raised more than one million in small dollar donations. They'll lock the doors, they'll turn off the lights, and they will have to either get under their desks or they will have to huddle in a, a specific area of the classroom. Blinds can be closed. It's generally dark and they're, they're told to be quiet. It's kind of a terrifying proposition. Stephen Rich is a data editor for The Post, and he just finished up a big project where he found that millions of American children went through lockdowns over the past school year. It's an experience that can be incredibly traumatic. Every kid sort of takes it differently, but we know that, you know, we've found kids who have written wills. We've found kids who have soiled themselves. We've found kids who have texted their parents to tell them goodbye. I mean, we found a 12-year-old in Birmingham, Alabama, who wrote a will after a lockdown, giving away, like, his bicycle to a friend and his Xbox. And these kids think, if I get shot in a school shooting, I want these people to have my things. This month marks a year since the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida. And that shooting kicked off a major increase in the number of school lockdowns. The seven worst days for lockdowns came within 10 school days of Parkland. And since then, they haven't really let up. They are traumatic. One of the folks we talked to out in California compared it to like an airbag. If you get in an accident, you want your airbag to go off. It's probably going to bust your face, but it's going to save your life. But you don't want to use your airbag on like a tiny fender bender. And you don't want to use it every day because that's not actually safe for you. And so a lot of it is about trying to mitigate the lockdowns that are unrelated to things that are direct threats to students. So lockdowns sort of vary from school to school, depending on how bad the preceding event that causes a lockdown is. But generally speaking, a lockdown is when a school locks the doors both to the outside of the school as well as internally. So there, you should not be able to get into or out of classrooms. You should not be able to move freely throughout the school. And they don't only happen when there is an actual threat, right? No. So many school lockdowns are related to violence in the community or the threat of violence in the community. Many schools go into lockdown because of police ask them to. The police ask them to because they're pursuing a suspect and they're on a manhunt and it's going to probably cross paths with the school. And so they ask the school to go into lockdown just as a precaution. So there are all kinds of reasons why a school can decide to go into lockdown. Right. 
And so what was the process of coming up with this data on how many kids have actually experienced these lockdowns? So I read through upwards of 20,000 news stories detailing every instance where there was the word lockdown and the word school in LexisNexis. 20,000? 20,000. Are you serious? I'm serious. And compiled the database from there. And then we also filed open records requests with some of the largest school districts in the country because we knew that we weren't actually seeing any of them being reported on in these cities. And we found tons more. So a lot of these lockdowns don't even get reported. So the database that we compiled is actually a, a, on the low end count. It's the bare minimum that we know of. After reviewing all of this data and all of these records, what did you find out? Well, we know that at least 4.1 million kids went through a lockdown in their school last school year. And we know that they went through an actual lockdown. We're not even talking about the drills. What we also know is that these tend to affect communities where there are higher concentrations of children of color. They're more likely to go through multiple lockdowns as well. And so we know that this is a bigger problem in minority communities than for anyone else. And is taking a bigger toll on kids who go to those schools in minority communities. Yeah. I mean, we know that some percentage of kids experience trauma related to these lockdowns. And the more often you go through them, the more likely you are to experience that. And so absolutely, we know that that is happening at a higher rate. And you said that this doesn't even include lockdown drills, which are like the planned events when you pretend like there's a real lockdown, but but there's not. Right. And even some of those lockdown drills can be traumatizing. We read stories about them all the time because many drills, they don't actually tell the kids that they're going to happen. They schedule them and then they want the kids to treat it as much like an actual lockdown as possible to see how everyone reacts. But at the end of the day, it has the same effect of an actual lockdown on these kids where they think that there's actual danger and they may see like a SWAT team roll up to their school, but it's all a drill and they didn't know it was a drill. And that's terrifying. Yeah. What do parents and teachers say about the effect that this has on kids when they experience this stuff? We know that it affects these kids and, and the parents are concerned. I mean, there was a there are stories out all the time about the weird things that schools do to prepare kids, especially elementary kids for lockdowns, the kind of rhymes that they have them go through. Like rhymes about lockdowns. There was one that went viral on Twitter not too long ago that was to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. It went. Lockdown, lockdown, lock the door, shut the lights off, say no more, go behind the desk and hide, wait until it's safe inside, lockdown, lockdown, it's all done, now it's time to have some fun. They're trying to teach these kids like what to do during a lockdown and they're using these things and I know that it's to try and take the edge off and make it seem like not a bad thing but when they actually are going through these things, the kids are terrified for a thing that they do not know what is happening. Is there a concern that the terror that they experience in these situations could have a long-term psychological impact on them? Yeah. I mean, many of the psychologists that we talk to about this are, are concerned about that very thing. We talked to one psychologist who said she saw similar sort of patterns talking to kids who had gone through a lockdown as she had when she talked to kids who had gone through an actual school shooting. Mm. And, and one of the things that we don't know about this kind of lasting trauma is what it will look like because most of these kids are still in school. The kids who went to Sandy Hook, many of them are still in middle school. Like these are not even kids who are in high school yet. 
we don't actually know how this is going to affect them in the long term because we don't actually ha haven't experienced the long term yet. Stephen Rich is a data editor for The Post. You can find the story that he reported with John Woodrow Cox at postreports.com. One more thing. Remembering the legacy of fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld, who died Tuesday in Paris. Post-fashion critic Robin Gavon says that Lagerfeld was a controversial figure who brought legacy brands like Chanel back into the spotlight. He started more than 50 years ago as the designer at Fendi. But it was really when he took the helm of Chanel in the 80s that his stature rose so that women in their 20s still look at Chanel as something that, you know, fashion-wise they aspire to, even though it ostensibly could have been something that their grandmothers wore. He really gave Chanel an incredible burst of fashion. So he began by making it relevant again. He made Chanel into a brand that people wanted to wear and not something that they were looking back on historically. And then I think he had a sharp tongue and he could be wonderfully honest and he could also be brutally mean. And it often got him in trouble. I mean, he sort of famously said that perhaps Adele was a little too fat and he could make fun of himself. But I think that's a, a far cry from when you decide that you're going to poke at someone else. Lagerfeld certainly championed designers whose work he admired, but I think almost in a way he set a standard for what a fashion designer can take on that in many ways overwhelms modern designers. I mean, he was unique, and it seems to me that a lot of contemporary designers sort of think that in order to do well, they have to take on all those things, too. And it's the rare person who can. Robin Gavon is the Post's fashion critic. That's it for today's show. Join the conversation about the show using the hashtag PostReports, or take a few minutes to share your thoughts at postreports.com slash survey. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. making post reports for a couple months now. And we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com survey. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. 
I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.